Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 148th video cast, 138th podcast for the week ending August 17th, 2022. We're recording this early this week. I have some meetings in the city tomorrow and uh, media on Friday. Uh, just back from Whitefish, Montana, we had an incredible uh, long extended weekend with our friends Rob and Chris, who graciously hosted us at their beautiful home. I should say compound, uh, and it was just incredible. These are some pictures from Glacier National Park, um, more from Glacier National Park. Always like to share with, uh, with you guys. It's become like a little family here over the last few years of doing this uh, video cast. And these, these are some jet skis, obviously our favorite uh, at the house. And uh, that's Mimi pulling, pulling back, and that's me with Annabelle. Uh, it was just absolutely beautiful, and you'll see uh, some skiing off the back of the boat, Annabelle on the trampoline, uh, some baby puppies that they were showing at a restaurant we went to, uh, horse riding at the ranch, uh, and so on and so forth. So great, uh, here's the full fam uh, at, I think it's the Big W Guest Ranch, if I recall correctly, and that's us in line going through the trails. This is us hanging out at the... Uh, guest cottage, which was awesome, beautiful views of the water, that's memes, Annabelle on the trampoline, and uh, more at Glacier. So what an incredible time, thanks to Rob and Chris. And uh, we're going to get started with uh, kicking off with the media spots and then get right down to the brass tacks. First, I would like to thank Ginny Go, Celestine Francis, Tanvir Gill, and Will Kolaris for having me on CNBC Street Signs for all of Asia on Monday night, Tuesday morning, Singapore time. This was a really incredible interview, about 10 and a half minutes. We went through everything from Fed policy, US dollar, emerging markets, uh, Alibaba, Chinese stocks, biotech stocks, auto suppliers, you name it, we covered. If you haven't listened to this yet, I'm not gonna put it into the video cast this week because we've got too much to cover. Do listen to that on your own. There's more valuable information in that 10 minutes uh, than, than you can imagine. Uh, moving right along, we have, I uh, want to thank Davide Barbusia for including me in his article today about treasuries and the Fed. want to thank um, the Kata Data newspaper in Indonesia, Abdul Aziz Saeed, for including me in his article. Uh, I was talking about the long-term demographics of Indonesia and how Emerging markets are set up for a huge rally over the next three to five years. Obviously, the biggest weight in emerging markets is China at 33.5% going to 33.8% at the end of the month. Uh, but Indonesia has much better demographics than China. Uh, and I did a two-hour segment on the Indonesia Investment Conference last week. If you haven't listened to that, it's well worth your while. It's queued up to the most important 10 or 20 minutes. Uh, and that's something you just set and forget. I want to thank Chibuke Ogu for including me in his Reuters article last week uh, with inflation now backing off all the managers who stayed in cash and didn't believe we could move off the June lows are now being forced back into the market. We're going to talk about where we are in that process. I want to thank Zoltan Saranyi and Shanti Rexaline for including me in their article on Benzinga. Both earnings and estimates have held up better than feared for Q2 with inflation backing off managers who stayed in cash and didn't believe uh, are going to be forced back into the market. Same concept. I um, want to thank Amruta 
Kondikar, Leroy, Leo, and Meta Singh for including me in their article uh, about biotech. Pfizer's move puts boards across big pharma on notice that if you if you're not in the market buying these companies while they're cheap, your competitors will. That's the biotech animal spirits. And then finally, want to thank Bansari Kamdar, Aniruddha Ghosh for including me in their article. Um, they were asking why banks were up. I said investors are chasing laggards that haven't participated in the huge runoff June lows. So if you've missed an 18% move, uh, you know you're chasing, so you're desperately uh, searching for those groups that have not yet performed and that's what was happening on the day they asked me moving right along uh, a reporter from bloomberg emailed me this morning uh, uh, some questions and i thought they were good ones so i want to cover them she said the rally has been slowing extending even in august uh and the s p has now recouped 50 percent of its losses since january would you still qualify it as a bear market rally how likely is it that stocks make a new low from here and I said, here's the data since World War II. Every single time the S&P 500 recovered, 50% of the crash decline. While it may have retested the lows in several instances, it never made new lows. Uh, are investors positioning for a soft landing or Fed pivot? If so, is that premature? On the basis of the CPI and PPI numbers, investors are positioning for a slowdown in the pace of tightening. A 75 basis point hike in September is now less likely than just a couple of weeks ago. It is not pre premature as both energy and most other commodities have come down. Demand has moderated and the supply chain is easing up. Her quest next question, investors appear to be less bearish while strategists are still very much sounding uh, caution on the rally. Why the divergence? What are investors seeing that strategists aren't? I said, strategists get paid to talk about returns while investors have to deliver them over time. There's an enormous career risk for managers who missed the 18% rally off the June lows. Uh, despite the fact that we're still down about 11% on the year, uh, the S&P, they do not have the luxury to be idealists and say the economic data does not yet support such a move. They have now been forced to chase as many have fallen behind their benchmarks. Anything else I should look at, uh, see above. Credit spreads are the key to the market. They are pointing to brighter times ahead. Always look at the credit markets first. The bonds tell the whole story. And this is very, very important because in July 4th or 5th, the high yield spread spiked up to 5.99%, almost 6%. And uh, you know there were, there were people raising money on the expectations that there was gonna be an apocalypse, et cetera. And sure enough, it held that level. This uh, setup, if you remember this chart, I put it out so, a while ago, and I said, after you've had an earthquake, uh, you usually don't get an earthquake right away. You get aftershocks and you get tremors. And I think that's exactly what we just uh, went on. So if you look at uh, 2002, you had an earthquake in the credit market, spreads blew out to 11 points. Then you came all the way back in and then you had an aftershock where it shot back up from 271 to 457 uh, in a few months in 2005. Scared a lot of people, but that was just midway in the rally. Uh, you usually get about four to five years after the heart attack or after the earthquake with a number of tremors before you go back to another uh, heart attack or earthquake. Same thing in 2009, spreads blew out to 2100 basis points. Uh, and then um, you, sure enough, you, uh, you cooled down all the way to 2011, and then you had an aftershock 
where spreads blew from 452 to 490, uh, basically a doubling. So, you know, each aftershock is pretty much doublings, a doubling. And, and you look here at the equity markets right off a huge rally in 2009. Uh, you had the aftershock in credit markets. Equities collapsed about 20%, not dissimilar to what we just saw. Huge uh, rally off the bottom after the uh, credit uh, earthquake in, uh, during the March 2020 huge rally in equities, then you get an aftershock in uh, where you get a doubling of uh, credit spreads. Same thing we got from 302 to 599, equity markets corrected 22%. Uh, same thing in 2011, they uh, went back down to retest, but that was, that was basically the end of it. Uh, and I think that we're gonna have a similar situation here as the spreads were coming down, you'll see that yes, you had some consolidation after the big move off the bottom, which we should certainly see in the month of September and maybe October. Take a look at that consolidation. It looks like it's going back down to make new lows, but it holds uh, and then it makes new highs. And I think we're gonna see the next, same thing over the next six, six to 12 months uh, as credit spreads uh, normalize. Same thing you saw during the last Fed mistake in December, 2018, you had the heart attack in 2015-2016 uh, with credit spreads going from 335 to 887 they collapse then you have an aftershock uh, that was in the 2018 you had about a 20 percent correction in equities uh, and then sure enough a big rally but again remember after you have a heart attack like you have it in the pandemic and you had it in 2016 and you had it in 2009 and you had it in 2001 you usually have about four or five years of calm with one or two aftershocks. So we're on the second year of calm with our first aftershock. Uh, expect some sideways consolidation in equities, but this uh, credit spreads coming in bodes well for companies that need to refinance this fall. I can think of one in particular that I'm particularly interested in. Uh, oh, and by the way, one thing I left out about the amazing trip, I got to play Iron Horse, which is a Fazio course. I got my little Iron Horse shirt here, very excited about that. Uh, lost way more balls than I expected to, had some nice shots, we had an amazing day. Rob shot a 73, uh, basically with a blindfold on, like a complete golf machine, every shot down the middle, every shot on the green, over and over and over. Uh, but uh, I think he sees some nice potential uh, in my golf game and, and hopefully that will get better every year and uh, uh, you know, it was just, just a great time. Moving right along, we've got, I wanna look at some of the major indicators here. Um, you know, this is interesting because this is not the level, uh, this is the equity put call ratio. Um, this is nowhere near a level of complacency, uh, the 10 day put call. So that, that implies we could have some more run, run up here before we get a consolidation because there's still a lot of insurance out there. So we'll keep an eye. But when you look across most of the indicators, uh, they are at uh, pretty aggressively high levels. Uh, but that, those are usually also consistent with like breath thrust, uh, breath thrusts off the bottom. I just wanted to check this one thing someone sent me today. Um, can't, can't get to Let's see if I got it. Um, yeah, 
Okay, great. So this was a thread about uh, whether this is a bear market rally because that's kind of consensus right now for a lot of people that missed the rally up. They're praying to God it's a bear market rally and they get another chance to uh, get a bite. Um, this thread is from Milton W. Berg. And he said, if this were a bear market rally, then the S&P 500 gain of 17.19, I think it's 18, off the decline of 23.55 would be the greatest bear market rally ever after an interim bear market decline of 27.7% or less. If this were a bear market rally, then the NASDAQ gain of 22.5 off the 33.7 correction would be the greatest bear market rally ever after an interim bear market decline of 37% or less. If this were a bear market rally, then this would be the first time that the five-week advanced decline exceeded 1.9 to 1 in a bear market. If this were a bear market rally, then this would be the first time in bear market that an S&P 500 has generated two 20 to 1 upside volume days in five days. The first time in a bear market that the S&P generated three 20 to 1 upside volume days in 20 days. If this were a bear market rally, it would be the first time the S&P 600 generated a 40 to 1 advanced decline in a bear market. If this were a bear market rally, it would be the first time the S&P 500 generated a 50 to 1 advanced decline in a bear market. If this were a bear market rally, it would be the first time 30-day highs exceeded 50% in a bear market. It would be the first time 92% of the S&P issues closed above their 10-week average. And perhaps we need to see real interest rates above 0% before a true extended bear market develops. Um, so, and this is data going back to 1957 on the S&P 500, 1971 on the NASDAQ, and 1994 on the S&P 600. So thanks to one of our uh alan woolman for sending that over um that was very useful and moving right along uh we okay to some of these indicators so he's basically saying like every indicator that he looks at uh is indicative of a new trend is beginning not uh, uh certainly you could go back and retest the lows but breaking new lows is a very very low probability at this point and i think even retesting is a very very low probability at this point but consolidating sideways, you can consolidate in price or you can correct in price or time. I think we're going to should have a time correction where we maybe grind sideways on some of these names that have moved up a lot in the last couple of months. Uh, maybe grind sideways through September and part of October into the election before taking the next leg higher. That would make perfect sense when you look at some of these indicators. Uh, but there are still things to do uh, under the surface. As always, that's where we spend our focus. But as you can see, some of these are getting all, all overbought that doesn't mean anything because look this is overbought and the rally persisted overbought the rally persisted overbought the rally persisted but we're just looking at odds here um would we be adding a lot of new positions no are we holding what we have 100 percent? we'll just ride through the volatility uh but you know these things same thing here it got up after the pandemic lows got all the way up to 100 but it stayed at 100 for another four or five months into July and then it did some consolidation. So these things can stay extended for a while, but they are extended and you need to be cognizant of that. It's not the time to say, wow, the market's up 20%, 18% off the lows. Let's go all in because we missed it. That, that's where you'll get hurt. There'll be better, better chances and, and discrete opportunities on the way. Uh, people are using the VIX down below 20 as a reason to get bearish again uh, because there's too much complacency, absolutely false. Uh, if you take the longer term view of this, uh, being this elevated is an aberration. 
and uh, I would be more worried if we were down in the normalized levels below 15, 10, 11, 12 is where I would start to get a little bit worried, not up at this elevated level uh, that it takes many years to work off to get back to real, real complacency after the heart attack we saw during the pandemic. Looking at some of our longer term positions, uh, Alibaba, this is interesting because this has really felt like paint drying and uh, just uh, never ending uh, nothingness. But in the scheme of things, as bearish as it feels, uh, basically the stock's done nothing since December. So, you know, down to 108 in December, we got up to 121 about a month and a half ago. Uh, and now we're at uh, 90 today, and it's like, oh my God, when is this going to end? But if you step back and you view what a trend change looks like, the, the stock still bottomed in March at $73. Uh, and what's happening in the interim, and this is very important for people like uh, uh, Milton Berg, who do technical analysis, is that you're making what they call higher highs and higher lows. So uh, here's the first low. Here's the first high, here's the second low at 78. So 73 was the first low, 78 was the second low, 88 was the third low, so we're testing that right now. Uh, and then you had the first high was like 120, then 121, then 121.50. So higher highs, higher lows, that's usually the beginning of a new uptrend. All we need now is a catalyst uh, and um, I think that when people, well, we'll cover some of the other things. Let's just talk technicals for right now. So as boring as this looks, doing nothing for nine months, uh, and as bearish as it feels lately because we got all that excitement going up, shooting up from you know 73 to 121 in a couple of months, and now we're back down to 90, it's just grinding its way through. You've had a huge overhead supply because the SoftBank guy blew up and he had to liquidate stock. That's now done. Uh, and we'll cover that as well. But this is good news. Higher highs and higher lows is an uptrend until that changes, until we take out 78. This continues to be an uptrend. Then we would look for a double bottom, blah, blah, blah. But I, I think this is, this is in pretty good shape. Looking at the longer term, just to zoom out, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We said that it's, it's very likely coming off a bottom. They bring everyone in then they rip their faces off and, and, that, and then they take off for the bigger move. Well, they bring everyone in here, they rip their faces off with a big red bar and then they take them up and that's I think where we are somewhere around here. Uh, same thing, this, uh, these were the two major lows. So we only have two examples in the history of Alibaba. Uh, you had this huge bar up like you had here, bring everyone in and then over the next couple of months they took everyone back down ripped their faces off, and then what, what did you have after you knocked everyone back out? So here's what happened. Everyone buys up here after the first big bar, and then they get absolutely shellacked. That's exactly what happened. And then once they've taken everyone out by taking it back down, uh, that's when you get the biggest move. Same thing here. Everyone buys after the first few big bars, then you rip their faces off on the downside all the Johnny-come-latelys who bought here. This is just human psychology. It repeats over and over. That's when you get the monster, monster move over the next year and a half from you know, 148 to 319. In the other case, it was from 59 to 206. So, um, so I think we're going to have a similar type of situation. We've just gone through the excitement of, oh, it's, it's happening. Now they've banged us down, and I think we're on this bar here. 
oh, it's happening. Now they've banged us down and we're probably on this bar or this bar here and ahead of the big, big move moving forward. Um, here's biotech. Again, that's been great. Up 50 some odd percent as of a couple days ago. Um, and you can take your pick. I mean, I think we're probably, you know, this is probably the best analog here in 2015 to 2016 because that was going into a tightening cycle. You got the crash after the tightening, you got the, it started, the rally begun, and we're probably somewhere in here. It's got to consolidate before finishing the move up uh, and ultimately making new highs. So we've got a long way to go on that, both in uh, price and in time. Uh, my base case is we're somewhere around here. We've got another year and a half to go uh, of this move back to, uh, back to new highs, and, and this could be a monster. So, uh, but the next few months could be sideways noise and we just have to sit through it. Um, as uh, Charlie Munger says, the world is full of foolish gamblers. They will not do as well as the patient investors or nearly as well is a better way to say it. Um, so patience and then Cooper Standard, uh, you know, look, this is exciting. They had the incredible earnings. Uh, it's now gone from our third largest to our first largest just because it's doubled in, in, in uh, value. Uh, but again, this is, uh, this is another example. If you didn't learn anything from BABA, okay, so they take everyone in on a big bar, they take everyone in on a big bar, they take everyone in on a big bar, and then they shoot them, elevator, the trap door opens, take out all the Johnny-come-latelys who bought here, take out all the Johnny-come-latelys who bought here, take out all the Johnny-come-latelys who bought here, and, uh, and then once you get them all out, you run it up for two years straight. No one believes it. You run it up for two years straight. No one believes it. And I think we'll run it up for two years straight. and No one believes it. Uh, and um, so expect one of these red bars for biotech and for Cooper Standard. Uh, he, just is a, this is a perfect example. Everyone's jumping on at $10. It would not shock me to see it get taken down back down to $6 here just to take out all the Johnny-come-latelys, a 40% drop will scare the hell out of them. Uh, and then boom, it'll, then you'll get the refinancing and boom, you're up to 20, 25 bucks. And all the people who bought at 10 and sold back at six will miss at 20, 25 uh, and then beyond at, over, the, over the years as uh, things move ahead. It's, you know, it's, not, it's not predicting anything. I don't have a crystal ball. I just study human psychology and more often than not, it tends to rhyme. Uh, the Fed meeting today, we had uh, Fed uh, minutes were from July, so they really didn't matter because they were before the CPI and PPI print. I was surprised at how dovish it was, to be honest with you. Nearly all respondents to the desk survey anticipated a 75 basis point increase in the target rate at the current meeting, which they did. And most expected a 50 basis point increase into, in September to follow. Now, that was before the inflation data. Yes, you had a strong jobs report, not good in terms of uh, having the Fed pivot, but we'd certainly confirm peak inflation. And if we get follow through in September with peak inflation and maybe a little weaker jobs report as we get the lagged effect, the Fed kicked off tightening in March, works on a lag basis. Maybe we'll start to see a little softness in August uh, jobs number plus a PPI CPI. You know, I talked uh, at, on, on the show on CNBC on, on uh, Monday night about potentially 25 or, or it could potentially be less than that, but certainly uh, 25 
uh, and they looked at me like I had four heads. So um, just think two, three weeks ago at the jobs report, people were saying 75 is not going to be enough. It's going to be 100 basis points. Now people are figuring out that the pivot has happened, the rate of change in inflation and the rate of change in tightening. And that's going to have implications on the dollar, which is going to have implications on emerging markets, which is going to have impl implications on China. It's all tied together. Uh, Fed saw smaller hikes ahead to access prior moves. Minutes show many participants saw risk over of uh, many participants saw risk of over tightening policy. This may be the Fed um, first Fed that ever understood the concept of the lagged effect of tightening. Uh, I think no one understands it potentially better than Powell after he got schooled in December of 2018 when he came in as a newbie and nearly threw the economy off the cliff. If you remember Christmas Eve, I mean, the market was down like 25%. And if it wasn't for uh, Steve Mnuchin coming in and getting the banks on a conference call, uh, who there was, there was zero liquidity. I mean, it was unbelievable. He just kept tightening. Autopilot was his thing. And, but th that's the bad news, that that had to happen. The good news is he learned from it and was an absolute rock star in the middle of p the pandemic, saved us from a Great Depression along with Steve Mnuchin. Uh, and he seems to be uh, doing a good job of allowing the tightening to kick in before getting too uh, abrupt and understanding that there's a good portion that's from supply chain. Supply chains are easing up. Uh, they do have to take demand down a little bit, which they've been doing with the hikes. But uh, as it relates to a quantitative tightening, they have only done one third of what uh, they had been scheduled to do by this point in time. And I think the opportunity of Jackson Hole is they're going to reset expectations around quantitative tightening um, and, uh, and maybe push out the schedule a little bit longer because everyone knows when you start quantitative tightening, things start to break. And the last thing you want to do after having credit spreads spike up to 6% uh, and now they're cooling off is break things again by doing quantitative tightening too quickly because that's equivalent to about a point of tightening uh, according to most uh, consensus as is the strong dollar uh, is another half point to a point of tightening. So financial conditions are getting tight and I think if they use Jackson Hole, maybe they don't say much about rates, they wait for the inflation data, but they say, look, this uh, balance sheet unwind is a long-term phenomenon. We're not gonna rush it. We had a schedule, a goal to do X billion per month. We're going to do it as we see fit. We've done a third of what we wanted to do. We're comfortable with that pace. We'll speed it up if things get hot. We'll slow it down if things get cold. But uh, we're not uh, firmly affixed to this schedule. And the reason they shouldn't be is because they saw what happened with Europe. Despite the fact that the Bank of Japan is the unlimited lender of last resort or uh, liquidity provider of last, uh, last support with unlimited quantitative easing, which is basically backstop the world, uh, the ECB had to pivot and had to go from tightening to basically back to quantitative easing. They called it something else for the periphery bonds, but they're back in the market buying bonds because things started to break and they can't afford uh, to see this, a similar situation in the United States. So I would expect uh, a walk back on an aggressive quantitative site tightening cycle coming to a uh, Jackson Hole theater near you.
uh, or something to that effect. And, uh, and very few people are looking for that. So I think that uh, points to good things moving forward. I do expect some consolidation of these gains in the equity markets over the next couple of months. But um, uh, that's where it is. Uh, this was interesting from Zero Hedge. Hedge fund bears capitulate, unleashing the biggest unleashing the biggest net buying and short covering at Goldman Prime since May. So this was from last Friday. This is interesting because if you remember the June 16th article we put out, it was the week that hedge funds had sold the most amount of stock in the hole that they'd ever sold in history. And if you remember my podcast, I said, if we're not buying this pessimism and these indicators at extreme pessimistic levels, what the hell are we doing? We're in the wrong business. And we were in buying that pessimism weakness. When I see the opposite headline that now the people who were selling in the hole are buying after the 18% rally, I get more cautious. Does that mean I'm taking uh, anything off? No, because I think all of what we own is still tremendously undervalued. Um, but uh, I'm not I'm not looking for new things to buy at these levels. And if you have something that's up huge, uh, you know, and you've been wanting to trim for a while, then then maybe that's that's an opportunity to, to trim into that strength. I'm not calling for a crash. I'm not saying it's a bear market rally. I'm just saying we've moved a long way. Look, on the flip side, uh, I can make a clear case that the, the pain trade would be up because not only did they miss the 18% rally, they're all waiting for a retest of the lows that'll never come. So if you keep pushing up against the wall of worry and you get a Fed pivot on quantitative tightening next week, uh, yeah, that would be max pain. Because as we look at the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey, they're still in record cash, like great financial crisis cash, uh, 2001 cash levels. So I could certainly see a scenario, which is why I'm not looking to sell anything. I'm not you know, chasing a- a- anything up, but I'm certainly not, not looking to put... Uh, new capital to work uh, after the move. So consumer sentiment rises in August as inflation shows. What I've been saying for the last few months, inflation and consumer confidence is tied at the hip. As inflation comes down, sentiment will go up and we put in the bottom on the Michigan consumer sentiment as anticipated. This was a great article. These small cap stocks will lead the market if the rally has legs. I don't care about the stocks that they picked. I mean, I love Texas Roadhouse in terms of their prime rib, but I don't know about as a stock. Um, I would say um, the key thing in this, uh, what happened here? Well, the key thing in that chart was that, um, and you can find it if you just go to, was that the medium PE ratio on small cap stocks is below the long, well below the long-term average. It's the lowest it's been. If you look at the PE for the small cap, uh, it's the lowest it's been since 2009. So on a relative basis, where, where do you find value? If you missed it, you start to look at small caps, which is one of the reasons uh, besides uh, all the theses that we've gone into on Cooper Standard that we wanted to have a, a big small cap play was specifically for that on a relative value basis. Money's going to flow in. Uh, aggressively into small caps. And I think uh, Cooper Standard puts us in good position to benefit from those flows as well. On to some China news. Um, I liked this note from, uh, I think it's Brendan Ahern that runs the K-Web. 
and he basically said, made the case why the state-owned enterprise ADR delistings from Friday, if you remember, people were panicking, five companies delisted. Oh my God, here it comes. The other 270 are going to delist tomorrow. Uh, I wish they would already and just get it over with, but uh, I don't think that's going to happen because... Um, so all the companies that delisted were state-owned enterprises. And what he's saying here is a solution to the Holding Companies Foreign Companies Accountable Act would be to delist all of the state-owned enterprise as their audit reviews may indeed contain sensitive information. An SOE audit might include the amount of government subsidies to the companies. So they don't want to tell the world how much they're subsidizing these, these public companies because it gives them an unfair competitive advantage and everyone would turn against them. So it's better for them to delist all the ones that are that are government owned. Uh, and the private companies have long stated they have nothing to hide, like audit away. We already use big, big three accounting firms. Uh, let's let it rip. So uh, the key point here is that um, this may be a signal that Beijing is, is setting the stage to compromise because they don't want to be delisted. They want to delist. They don't want to be told what to do. So they're doing it ahead of time. And when all of the questionable companies are already delisted, the SOEs, then they can cut a deal uh, with all the private companies and off to the races. Not only will they get the Stock Connect money from mainland China, probably 30, 40 billion into BABA, just like Tencent has 30 billion because they've never had the US listing. They've always had the Stock Connect. Um, and uh, the other thing, uh, the CSRC, China's SEC, put out a statement pointing out the obvious that the five listings have little volume and account for a very small percentage of the company's market cap. Quote, we will maintain communication with relevant overseas regulatory agencies to jointly safeguard the legitimate rights and interests of enterprises and investors. Um, so that's that. So so basically, the market interpreted it as bad news. Uh, we think it's good news, and we agree with that. Uh, China cuts key interest rate to kickstart growth. Their economic stuff came in weaker. Surprise, surprise, they were shut down for two months. Uh, people are shocked by the fact that their numbers are weak with shutdowns. Uh, but they did cut rates. They did increase liquidity by about $59 billion. They're going to have to do a whole lot more. Uh, Chinese Vice Premier came out today and said exactly that, urges greater effort to boost consumption. Uh, big players in consumption, obviously Alibaba will benefit from anything more that they do that. At a meeting aiming to stabilize trade and consumption, called for greater efforts to support exporters to gain orders, as well as attract new foreign investment, from, according to the state media. Uh, you know, lockdowns, COVID zero, et cetera, et cetera, that hasn't helped. Uh, now, junk bonds sweep to a record summer rally. That is key. We covered that, and that's going to open the credit markets in the fall, uh, provided the Fed it doesn't get too crazy with quantitative tightening. So that's, that's the variable out there, but I think they're aware of all of these factors. I think Powell has been dealing in markets and business long enough uh, and understands these things, so um, we'll see how that plays. Uh, China rate cut spurs call for more moves. PBOC-backed newspaper cites analysts saying more action is needed and more action shall be coming. Uh, when you have a billion people that are unhappy, it's not a good way to retain your power. So they've started in that direction in November. 
they shot themselves in the foot by doing the shutdowns and the COVID zero, but the money and the stimulus is still there uh, and, and more will be coming. So as, as long as the country stays open, uh, we'll start to see more and more of that. And we saw indications of that in July versus June traffic for Alibaba. Uh, and I think we'll see that reflected in earnings. Uh, op- uh, Alibaba's SoftBank overhang clarified as foreigners fret. Again, every headline that it's so, the, the sentiment is so pessimistic right now, uh, but nothing's really changed about the business, underlying business. I mean, the fact that they were flat year on year uh, with the country shut down for two out of the three months is mind boggling. Like that, that's it's just a miracle uh, that, that they could do that. Imagine when the shackles are taken off uh, and the share that they've picked up from all the small businesses going out of business with these you know, unwise government policies. So leaving that aside, and by the way, you know, for people who are scared that COVID zero is gonna last forever, the pandemic is not gonna last forever. You know, in 1917, 1918, Uh, The whole thing basically went away within three years, two and a half to three years. So, uh, you know, they've all been vaccinated with the Sinopec vaccine, which basically doesn't work. Uh, And, um, you know, the the best case scenario would be that they just let people live their lives and effectively everyone gets COVID, which is now close to the flu. Uh, and, And that's basically how things played out in 1918 to 1920, when there were no vaccines, it just eventually dies down as it keeps uh, vary, uh, you know, different variants continue to get weaker and weaker and weaker. And basically it's the modern day annual flu. Um, and, and the same thing will be, be the case with COVID. So at some point they're gonna say, okay, this is, this is like the flu. We've allowed people to operate during the flu. And, uh, and, and, and it just goes away. And that, I think we're getting close to that even in China. So even if they kept a ridiculous stringent policy, uh, there would be no reason to implement it because uh, it, it effectively fizz, fizzles away over time. Um, okay, so as far as the overhang, the big problem was that um, SoftBank had to deleverage because they were in all these bets, WeWorks. They, just, they chased everything at the top. And they've cut their position to 14.6% ownership from 23.7. They sold 242 million shares via derivative contracts. So um, that means the banks had to sell against those contracts in the market. And that, that's probably what's led to a lot of the pressure in the stock over the last few months. Uh, despite wanting to bottom after that un- uninvestable report, you know, you probably just had regular selling on, on any strength. You've had selling of this magnitude, you know, 10% of the company is big. Um, however, uh, and take it for what it's worth, uh, the key is SoftBank said they wouldn't do this again, alleviating the risk of more shares being sold, an over, i.e. an overhang in the stock, similar to what's happening to Tencent as process keeps selling shares but has no guidance on when that will end. So uh, Tencent reported bad earnings today and the stock was up 4%. So that's our three or 4% in a week tape. So that's good to see. So there's, there's money that wants to start to get into this. And I think we've just effectively run out of sellers. And that's what the technicals are saying for all the technical analysts with higher highs and higher lows. We're just running out of sellers. Otherwise we would just keep making new lows like we did through this period. So, um, so we, we, we remain very constructive, um, you know, and um, 
and that's that. So moving along, uh, more Chinese state-owned companies expected to delist from U.S. exchanges as accounting SPAC continues. Yeah, uh, the state-owned ones are all going to delist. So get ready for that. The private ones, the big ones will stay uh, is our base case. And irrespective, it, it, it really doesn't matter. It's, uh, it's a year and a half to two years out uh, and the shares are fungible. Uh, why the Fed might be at neutral already on monetary policy, strong dollar and the unwinding of quantitative easing are equivalent to one percentage point rate hike. So we covered that. Uh, and maybe they'll speak a little bit more to that in Jackson Hole, which will make the case for, you know, today expectations of the rate hikes dropped considerably in Fed funds futures. That may continue into Jackson Hole if they back up on uh, quantitative tightening. And then it's followed up with, uh, a confirmation on the PPI and CPI. Maybe we do see 25, you know, hypothetically, maybe we see zero in September. Hypothetically, uh, that was a stronger case before the strong jobs report, but it's not completely out of the question. So let's see what happens. Uh, Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey, a couple key points here 284 managers, 836 billion in assets. Uh, hopes inflation shock and rate shocks end in coming quarters. So they were as pessimistic uh, uh, as they were in 2008. So that's bo- at 2008 levels. So that's bo- 2008 to 2009. So that's bottoming there. They're all expecting a recession. Now, what's interesting with 60 some odd percent expecting a recession, like the pandemic, Uh, The levels got this high in April of 2020. The bottom of the stock market was already in when this many people were looking for the recession. And that's exactly what you're seeing right now. Everyone's now waiting for a recession, talking about the yield curve inverted. The yield curve inverted before uh, uh, way early in the year. And we've had the two quarters of negative GDP growth. So they're waiting for a recession that already came. And the same thing in March 2009, they were looking for a recession. What they didn't realize was it already happened in 2008. And that was the bottom of the market when everyone was looking for the recession. Bottom of the market when everyone was looking for the recession. And I think a similar situation right now. Global profit, global profit optimism also easing from record low. Same levels uh, at September 2008, pandemic lows. Um, you know, you know, basically people were expecting the end of the world. Now it's just coming off the... Um, the defibrillator, so to speak. I mean, it was effectively a heart attack. Uh, low inflation expectations, lower lower inflation expectations, lower interest rate. Uh, so that's good. Uh, what do you think is the most likely reason for the Fed to pause or pivot in 2022? And U.S. inflation, PCE deflator drops below 4%. Um, or the S&P drops below... So... I don't know, that no big change month on month. We covered that last week. Uh, pessimism is easing. The interesting thing is uh, growth to outperform value for the first time since August of, 20, uh, uh, August of uh, 2020. Uh, we've been talking about that for a long time. Value tech, biotech groups that can, uh, and China tech that can outperform in a slow growth environment um because everyone was chasing cyclicals energy in the first and second quarter we said the trap door was going to open that certainly happened i think oil is now 82 or some 80 i don't know it's 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 not 120 i'll tell you that 
Um, and um, so now people are getting the story that, uh, you know, the cyclical trade was last year, uh, the last two and a half years. Now we're moving more aggressively back into uh, some of the growth trade and, um, and that will be a benefit. But look at these cash levels. Uh, back to pandemic lows, before that, the, the 2016 crash, before that, the European debt crisis levels, and before that, the great financial crisis, and before that, 2003, the end of the tech wreck. Uh, so cash levels get this high before monster rallies, and uh, this time is no different, despite the fact it started to ease off this month, which is good, because that means the rally can begin to, to commence, as has been the case the last five or six instances. Um, net percent say that they're overweight equities, but it still shows how much room there is to go. They were the lowest overweight equities since the absolute bottom of the great financial crisis. They got kind of close in the pandemic lows. We've come off the great financial crisis lows of overweight equities, but we're still at the pandemic lows. Can you believe that the pessimism is high as when the world stopped and we didn't know when we were going to have a vaccine and people are more pessimistic equities even today after an 18% rally than they were at the pandemic lows. It's mind boggling to me, uh, but that creates the opportunity. So what are they bullish on? They're bullish on cash uh, and they're bearish on emerging markets. We want to take the other side of both those trades. We want to be uh, not long the US dollar and we want to be long emerging markets uh, as the dollar weakens into year end is our base case. Uh, same story here, most crowded trade, long US dollar. Uh, not dissimilar to long energy a few months ago when we said the trap door was going to open. Uh, biggest tail risk is inflation stays high. We agree with that, but we don't think it's going to happen. We do think the supply chain is easing. We do believe some of the structural components are easing. Certainly rents are going to stay high, but uh, uh, the slack in the labor market is uh, uh, coming back. I think more people are going back to work. So I think that uh, wages are, are going to stabilize, but, but rents, uh, while they may stop going up, they're probably not going down aggressively anytime soon. Uh, but that could change as supply comes on, and, um, which, which, which creates a new op another opportunity setting up in housing for people buying, building starter homes because there's still a shortage there. Um, okay. So cash is still at 5.7%. It's uh, crowded trade. FMS positioning, still long stagflation. There's still long commodities, cash, and defensives. There's short Goldilocks, which would be EU stocks, which, by the way, they're almost as pessimistic on EU stocks as they are on emerging market stocks. I think that could change very quickly. And the big change is going to be, you know, the dollar got so strong this year. Why? Because we were the first ones to tighten and tighten aggressively. Um, as we pivot and become the first ones to reverse course or slow down the pace of tightening, the dollar is going to start to collapse as relative yields become less attractive uh, and, um, and, and money doesn't have to come in to buy, to convert to U.S. dollars to buy U.S. treasuries because the yields are, are less, uh, less attractive to some of the other co countries that are still in their tightening cycle. So I think you're going to see the Indonesias of the world continue to tighten. They've got higher inflation. Uh, and that'll be a good thing from a, a relative yield standpoint and a weak dollar standpoint, which, by the way, will also be a tailwind for earnings. 
So the article of the week is the wrong side of the wave stock market and sentiment results. While you're looking at that, click on terms, not uh, opinion. It's opinion, not investment advice. Uh, you can read through that. That's me on the back of Rob and Chris's boat, uh, surfing for the first time, which was so much fun. But as I found out, I was on the wrong side of the wave. So while I was able to balance for, for a short while, uh, successfully where you should be is in the front of the wave where the wave pushes you versus uh, the wave trying to knock you off your surfboard. So, um, so that was so much fun. And by the way, both girls got up, uh, Rob helped Annabelle and Mimi did it all by herself. So that's pretty exciting. Um, okay, now in our June 16th weekly note, we made two key statements. I said, here's a question. What if we already had the recession and Q2 comes in negative? Remember, this is before the negative GDP print for Q2. How much do you think is already priced in considering the U.S. indices already marked a bear market on Monday down 20% on a closing basis? Uh, by the way, the total correction was 22%. Uh, we think most, if not all, of a mild recession has already been priced in. The market always bottoms before the data begins to improve. By the time they announce the recession, which will probably be, by the way, right after the election, I would say November 9th, we'll get the official announcement that we have a recession already. Um, uh, by the time they announce a recession, the market bottom will already be in the rearview mirror. That announcement could come as early as next month if we see negative Q2 GDP or as late as mid-2023 if we don't. But our base case is that is it will have been slash will be shallow. So uh, we did get the negative GDP. The question is when we'll get the announcement. Uh, it certainly won't be before the election, but uh, my guess is shortly thereafter. And then the second thing I said on June 16th, which was days away from the bottom, was, quote, while pessimism continues to climb to a new all-time high, so do earnings. One of the two will have to come down soon. My bet is that pessimism will come down more than earnings. And I think that's been the case because the market's up 18% and earnings estimates are down 2%. So despite the fact that people were calling for earnings to be down 20%, uh, and that hasn't been the case, just like they were calling for 20% unemployment in the middle of the pandemic, and we were saying buy stocks. Um, uh, and that's that. So since then, uh, market's up 18.7, but still down 10.9% year to date, probably 11% today. Uh, note that because most managers are now riding behind the wave like I was in the picture here instead of in front of the wave and letting the wave push me um, and only got up on their board in early August chasing the rally, the smallest turbulence will cause them to, quote, wipe out, dump their stocks at exactly the wrong time because they are behind their benchmarks and bought too late. If you recall from the podcast video cast from that week in June, we said that hedge fund managers were selling the most equities that week, quote, in the hole than ever before in history. We went on to say, quote, if we're not stepping in to buy this pessimism, what the hell are we doing? Find a new profession. We just did step in, and so did the listeners of our weekly podcast video cast. With the cushion built up off that move, we're riding ahead of the wave, and any short-term turbulence can easily be managed and absorbed and surfed through, even if the Johnny-come-latelys get wiped out again. So uh, in street signs... Um, among many other topics, we discussed uh, Disney, biotech, emerging markets, Cooper Standard, Fed policy, U.S. dollar, China, BABA, and more. 
But the key statement I made was, as it related to Baba, the most important organ in investing is the stomach, not the mind. And some wise guy on Twitter replied and said, what about the balls? But uh, I think that's not uh, 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 gender friendly. So we're, we're going to uh, use a, a, a uh, more precise term and, and stomach is the key because there are uh, exceptional uh, male and female and uh, other managers out there uh, and everyone has the stomach and the fortitude to see things through in times of turbulence. Now, moving right along, we covered biotech a million times. The deals keep racking up. Animal spirits are back. You can look just since April, two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20 deals have been done in the last few months uh, and uh, more to come. The next catalyst will be more drugs being approved now that the FDA is focused on that. As for Alibaba, uh, web traffic's up 20, 21% June over July. Remember, just keep in mind, when you see headline, bad headline after bad headline after bad headline, just ask yourself, what's changed about the business today? What, what, what about this headline is going to affect the amount of people that go on Taobao or the amount of people that digitize their business with AliCloud or the amount of people that, uh, that they grow in Southeast Asia, etc., etc., etc. And if the answer is, I can't think of how delisting is going to affect the amount of people that buy goods on uh, you know, one of their websites, then you got you to just put it in the back of your mind. Uh, okay? Um, so... Uh, we covered everything about the SOEs. We covered about the forced seller overhang, which is now in the rearview mirror. Um, and the key question I asked Tanvir when she said, "Well, what about Alibaba?" And with the, you know, uh, great fear in her voice because all she deals with is the negative headlines. I said, "By the way, if someone asked you if you were interested in buying Amazon at a 66% discount," With the AWS growth curve just getting started, China's digitization is five years behind the U.S., would you be interested? And that's really what's on the table with Alibaba. Despite all the short-term noise about delisting, COVID, zero, slow recovery, etc. Uh, oh, and by the way, you get a third ownership of the largest financial services company in the country in Ant Financial for free, which has about a trillion dollars of assets. But uh, leaving that aside... Uh, yeah, you can you can spend the next year worrying about whether the Chinese government's going to relist uh, delist their their state-owned enterprises because they don't want to disclose the amount that they're subsidizing and giving the state-owned enterprises unfair advantage over uh, global competitors. Um, of course, they're going to delist them. So, uh, the most important organ in investing is the stomach, not the mind. We talked about China, Disney. You can read that on your own. Um, this guy. Um, as I made the case on, okay, so, you know, earnings came in better than feared. I also talked about the tax on buybacks is going to front load billions of buybacks before year end and put a floor in the market. The technical recession is now in the rearview mirror as GDP estimates for second half are now positive 1.8% for Q3, 0.8% uh, for Q4. The final nail in the coffin for bears looking for new lows will be the September CPI also coming in lower than expected, resulting in the Fed doing much less than expected in September. And that'll be it. Um, but in the meantime, we'll probably choppy consolidate sideways and the bears will come back out on TV and say, see, this is just a bear market rally. We're going back to make new lows. We're going to see a lot of that. That's to take you out of your stock 
uh, before we push higher into year end. And if you want, you can go back and reference that 1966 analog uh, that I showed you, which did show that after that first move, a few months of sideways choppy consolidation, <clears throat> which looks small on a chart, but, but could be, you know, 7% range um, sideways and scare the hell out of everyone. So um, that was that. And then this guy was on CNBC last night, Mike Ward from Benchmark, talking about um, auto production being up 30% in Q3. Autobrook is growing stronger despite the backlog and the most bullish demographic car purchasing trends in history, which I've been talking about, but he says it so eloquently. Spend the two minutes and listen to what he says if you have any interest in Cooper Standard. Here are the credit spreads we talked about. Uh, you know, uh, earthquake, tremor, earthquake, tremor. And it goes back to normalize. If you look on the longer term basis, this is normal. Earthquake tremor, earthquake tremor, earthquake tremor, earthquake tremor. Uh, and that's that. So um, we covered the Bank of America survey. This is very important. All you need to know about the US dollar trade I covered in the CNBC interview above. When that changes, money will flow into emerging markets like there's no tomorrow. Uh, the Fed tightening caused the rally. Fed slowing will change the tides. This is from... Uh, uh, Charlie Bellello, he's showing emerging markets performance to the S&P performance. Every time you had a period like this from 1994 to 1999, the emerging markets were down 44%. In the subsequent uh, period from 1999 to 2010, emerging markets were up 392% versus the S&P was up 10%. So this goes back and forth. So we've had this huge return in... Um, S&P, 357% over the last 12 years versus the emerging markets have done nothing over the last 12 years. And if passes any prologue, we're, we're due for another 392 to 599% uh, run over the next handful of years, uh, just like we saw uh, coming off the, these lows and, and we should see coming off these lows. The key factor to watch in that turn, which by the way, 33.8% is China, is going to be this dollar weakening. And um, and that's exactly what we saw, by the way, uh, here when we started to get the rally. September of 2000, the, the dollar started to back off a little bit. And, uh, and then during this whole rally, what was happening? The, the dollar didn't have to collapse completely. It just had to change its direction. And once it's, it peaked in 2002, even though it was still high, it started to come down, this went all the way up, okay? 400, 392% over basically eight years. So, um, and what was happening there, uh, you can't see it back there, but the same thing that happens before every dollar, uh, every time the dollar stops going up and starts going down, all that has to happen is it stops going up, but starts going down is the commercials give you a signal many months before, just like they've been doing, like they did in 2019, and like they're doing today, they've been sellers since the beginning of the year. Sooner or later, that catches up. All that has to happen is it stops going up, which it has. Uh, God forbid it actually comes down. Uh, then this thing could absolutely start to rip, and that's going to be a secular move for the next three to five years plus, maybe eight to ten. Uh, China obviously having the weight, and then others like Indonesia, India. Uh, Singapore, Vietnam, Malaysia, we'll, we'll look for opportunities there as well. Okay, so sentiment, you know, it's getting higher, but it can still have room to run. You know, just starting greed, but still plenty of room uh, across the board. Moving along, earnings. 
Russell 2000, uh, in the last 60 days, earnings power, top 30 weights down 75 basis points for next year, down 3%. But um, that is nothing compared to what the correction was. Basic materials uh, expected to increase 3.3% uh, for this year, up 11 basis points for next year. That's attributable to Albemarle, I think. Uh, largely that skewed the results. And then the S&P, uh, IBD growth stocks, which we've been talking about, uh, tech versus cyclicals, uh, expected to grow 4.61% uh, estimates are up. And for 2023, estimates are up 2.98. So they got flushed in the first half of the year. Now they're coming back and uh, people cut costs by investing in technology. You'll take advantage of that. Uh, we're going to get cut off. Watch the rest of it on YouTube. Go to hedgefundtips.com. Fast forward to minute 60. You'll pick up right where you left off. 